Welcome to Crohn's and Colitis Perspectives on ReachMD, produced in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. A fast and accurate diagnosis is the first crucial step in getting patients to therapy faster. And when it comes to debilitating, life-altering conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, that first step is even more critical. But because inflammatory bowel disease can affect so many different parts of the digestive tract, it can be difficult to diagnose. So what are the key signs and symptoms that we should be on the lookout for? Coming to you from the ReachMD studios in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, this is Crohn's and Colitis Foundation Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cardle, and joining me is Dr. Neil Nandi, an associate professor of medicine and an academic gastroenterologist and the director of the Center for Inflammatory Bowel Disease at Drexel Medicine in Philadelphia. Dr. Nandi, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's talk about patient demographics. Is IBD more common in certain age ranges or genders or even races? Yes. So particularly Crohn's disease has a predilection for the second and fourth decades of life. And there's a smaller peak between the age 50 to 60 range. Truth be told, it can affect almost any age from infancy on up, but it's usually in the younger age population. So second to fourth decades is the highest peak onset. It turns out that Crohn's is more prevalent in westernized nations. That's a lot of theories there. But we are seeing that countries like Canada, Europe, North America have much higher rates of inflammatory bowel disease than developing nations like Africa, India, or or Asia. Uh, That said, if you go to towns or cities in developing nations, Bombay, okay, New Delhi, you are now starting to see where they have more westernized diet and westernized lifestyle, increasing incidence of IBD there. So there's something about the Western diet, the Western type of living seems to be increasing the prevalence. Ashkenazi Jews have a three to four times increased risk compared to non-Jewish people to develop Crohn's disease. And we believe that for that specific group, it seems to be more genetically influenced than others. By and large, African-Americans and Asians seem to be lower risk, but uh, clinically around the country, especially here in the United States, we're even seeing those populations of African-Americans and Asians to start seeing increasing IBD as well. Interesting. You know, I work in a primary care setting. I'm a family doctor, and I often see patients presenting with GI issues. So from your vantage point as a gastroenterologist, Dr. Nandi, you know, what signs or symptoms should I be looking for in my patients when it comes to IBD? So I'm glad you asked because I really believe that the diagnosis of Crohn's really lies pretty much most in clinical history taking, just like most of us do, right? So in terms of the history, 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 we're always looking for not just the abdominal pain and diarrhea, but when they're having abdominal pain and diarrhea. And Crohn's and ulcerative colitis are pathologic illnesses that don't take a break. They work 24-7. So even through the night, patients can wake up from the dead of sleep with pangs of abdominal pain, urgent diarrhea, and incontinence even. And that should be an alarm sign to the clinician that something is wrong and that this is unlikely to be something like irritable bowel syndrome. So the presence of nocturnal awakening is an alarm sign to us. Also, we're looking for extra intestinal manifestations of inflammatory bowel disease. We know that about 25% of patients will experience one extraintestinal manifestation before their formal diagnosis. And if you have had IBD long enough, that about half of patients will at least develop one extraintestinal manifestation over their lifetime. 
Now, when I mean extraintestinal manifestation, I'm talking about the immune system attacking another organ system, such as the eyes, getting episcleritis, uveitis, painful vision, oral aphthous ulcers that don't have to be painful, but these can be whitish ulcers on the gums, the lips, the cheek. You can also have joint aches, arthralgia. Rheumatologists collectively call these spondyloarthropathies. That's a mouthful, but typically they're of the axial skeleton, so the spinal cord or the lower sacrum, such as ankylosing spondylitis, and that commonly has nocturnal awakening with arthralgic pain. And then lastly, there's also cutaneous manifestations such as erythema nodosum, which are painful purplish reddish nodules on the shins in textbooks, but in the real world, they don't have to be very discolored. They don't have to be very obvious nodules, but painful bumps on the shins typically. Those four in particular, eyes, oral aphthous ulcers, joints, and uh, erythema nodosum, typically parallel disease activity. What does that mean? It means that they can actually herald intestinal disease activity before a patient flares or while they're flaring. So they're basically markers of disease. There are other extraintestinal manifestations that I haven't addressed yet, but we can get into that in a little bit more detail. Other things that we're looking for or making a diagnosis are that the extraintestinal complications of a Crohn's disease patient, such as stricture, the, the patient may have nausea, vomiting, abdominal distension, signaling a small bowel obstruction, or they may have a fistula, connection from the intestine to the skin or to the bladder where they get frequent urinary tract infections, that's common to see, or perianal fistulizing disease, uh, where the patient has some difficulty sitting on their tuchus, but in reality it's because they have a little abscess brooding from a perianal fistula that's developing. So uh, those are things that we have to pay attention to on clinical history. Of course, labs and stool studies, right? So oftentimes we're checking labs and looking for iron deficiency anemia, elevated markers of inflammation, such as the sedimentation rate or CRP. Typically CRP tends to trend a little bit better to active IBD. We're also looking in the stool for markers of inflammation, such as fecal calprotectin. Fecal calprotectin is a marker that's found in neutrophils attacking the gut, so they get pooped out and we can detect it in the stool. If the calprotectin is elevated, then it suggests that there's some type of inflammation going on in the gut. So history is most paramount in making the diagnosis of IBD, looking at the labs and stool studies to help further confirm or characterize the level of inflammation is also very important. And then of course, you know, when you have that suspicion, you know, making the referral to the right type of GI specialist or IBD specialist. Excellent. And you gave us a lot of really important symptoms to look out for. Um the nocturnal symptoms, you talked about the GI symptoms, you even talked about the systemic symptoms we often see in um, inflammatory bowel disease. Have any of these symptoms changed over the last few years? So for instance, are you seeing a shift in how patients initially present? I'm seeing that patients are being referred earlier. I don't think that we are seeing an increased prevalence of inflammatory bowel disease. And we verify that statistically, we used to think that there was only about 1.5 million Americans with inflammatory bowel disease. That study was redone a few years ago and confirmed by multiple bodies. And now we have over 3 million people. And it's because patients can have clinically silent or underdiagnosed IBD, but we're finding that clinicians in the community are picking up on early iron deficiency anemia that can't be explained or paying attention to extraintestinal manifestations. Or, or being confident that the patient's symptoms, they may not be explained, but it doesn't really fit quite IBS, so they're making the referral early. So I don't think that symptoms have really changed, but we are seeing people refer earlier so we can make the diagnosis of IBD sooner. 
Well, that, that actually sounds like a really good thing. I'm happy to hear that. You know, and now that we've covered a lot of the common symptoms of IBD, let's talk about how primary care clinicians and gastroenterologists can work together with their IBD patients. So what advice would you give to us primary care clinicians as to what the first step should be if we suspect a patient might have IBD? So one is uh, giving some basic education to the patient about why you're reaching out to the GI doctor. I think prepping the patient psychologically is really important because oftentimes a lot of fear and patients can get lost from primary care diagnosis to the specialist office. We see that all the time. That's a dangerous period. That's a lost missed opportunity. So providing reassurance, that's a very important part. Then, you know, do what primary care doctors do best, honestly. Primary care doctors are the best communicators and I hope my specialists out there don't hate me too much, but I feel that specialists don't communicate enough back to their primary care doctors. But it's that communication that's key. So I think communicating with the multidisciplinary team verbally is uh, invaluable rather than just sending records alone. That's probably the first and foremost thing. The other thing is once the patient gets to the GI doctor's office and we make the diagnosis and we made initiated treatment, oftentimes other important facets of care are missed. And Dr. Codd, that's exactly what primary care and family medicine excel at, which is preventative care. I think you'd agree, right? When we put our patients on biologics, they're at risk for infections. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now in 2019, we see more than ever that we need to be optimizing our vaccines uh, on our patients. So those patients need non-live vaccines for influenza, pneumonia. Some patients may need uh, vaccination for varicella zoster and other things. Also, uh, we need primary care to help us do bone scans because the untold side effects of uh, steroids causing osteoporosis. I'm sure you see that all the time. And then, of course, all the other things that GIs don't know how to do. GIs don't know how to do pap smears. GIs don't know how to do breast exams. We know how to do a prostate exam for whatever that's worth, right? We also don't know how to do good skin exams. So we need the help of primary care and dermatologists because some of our medications may increase the risk of melanoma or non-melanoma skin cancers. And then another thing that I think that's really important we take it for, some of us take it for granted, is smoking cessation. Even in 2019, you know, we still see people lighting up, young people, old people. And we know that tobacco actually makes Crohn's worse. I'll give you the best biologic in the world and tobacco will undo its effect. So those are things that, you know, each of us train to be good at certain things and each of us have our certain talents and primary care is critical for these specific types of preventative healthcare measures to be taken. They're the best at doing it. And I think that there needs to be better communication from the subspecialist to our primary care brethren. Well, let me just say, as a family doctor, I would like to thank you for those comments, and I'd like to thank you on behalf of all my primary care colleagues. I definitely appreciate you saying that, and, and it certainly is, as a primary care physician, you know, prevention is one of the banes of our existence, right? It's one of the reasons why we do what we do, and it's wonderful that you feel that communication from your primary care specialist has been good. You've mentioned a lot of things, I think, that are really important for us helping our patients, because that's what they really are. It's, it's all of our patients, right? Our IBD patients, it's your patient, my patient, everyone's patient. Are there any other ongoing management recommendations that you may have for us physicians? You know, do you have any other tips for success on how we can make this a successful collaboration? I think communication being key, but I think the thing I want to impress the most, and this is where we, the GIs, really need the help which is making that early diagnosis, that early referral. Because when we introduce all these beautiful new treatments that we have too late, they really don't prevent surgery. But if we 
introduce the treatments early, early induction, that's where we make the difference. That's where we improve the patient's lives, where we continue for them to be a productive member of school, work, society, as a, as a husband, wife, father, where they don't have to go to surgery. But all that is disrupted when we introduce the treatments too late. So I think the beautiful thing is, is that primary care really has, and always has, had the, the wonderful opportunity to make the diagnosis early and make that referral early to the doc. And getting in to see an IBD specialist or a GI specialist is expedited when we speak to each other over the phone. Excellent. I couldn't agree more with that. Unfortunately, now we're, we're actually almost out of time for today. But before we go, Dr. Nani, do you have any final thoughts to share with our audience? I think that inflammatory bowel disease treatments come a long way. Key is making the early diagnosis, communication between all subspecialists involved in the care. And uh, doing so, we can really have a good chance of improving the quality of our patients' lives. Well, those are all great concepts to take with us. And with that, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Neil Nandi, for joining me to discuss the signs and symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease. Dr. Nandi, it was great having you on the program. Thank you for having me. This program was brought to you in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. If you missed any part of this discussion, or to find others in this series, visit reachmd.com foundation where you can be part of the knowledge.